0: Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 11 here in a minute. This is the passage of Scripture, the account of the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The parallel passages are in Mark chapter 1, 12 through 13, and Luke chapter 4, 1 through 11. But we're going to focus in on Matthew's account today. And I'll remind you that we are going through the Gospels in a... a, um, sort of parallel fashion or a harmony fashion here as we just look at the life of Christ and we want to see and savor Jesus Christ and worship him more rightly as a result of seeing and savoring, savoring him. So as you're turning there's hold your finger there in Matthew chapter 4. Um, I came across a couple of stories this week. There was a man in uh, Russia. I'm not sure where because... I didn't write down the name of the city because it was so many letters. I really just couldn't pronounce it anyway. But someplace in Russia, there was a man named Boris Isayev. Boris Isayev was 48 years old. And he entered into a local pancake eating contest. And Boris was so good at eating the pancakes, he won the contest. But not only did he win the contest, he decided he would really show off and go ahead and finish off The pancakes that the other contestants couldn't finish off once they had reached their fill. And so he he not only won the contest, he blew the competition away. The only problem is when he went up on stage to receive his award for his ability to eat so many pancakes. And I have no idea how many he ate. The article didn't say. He collapsed on the stage, began foaming at the mouth, and died on the spot. And it reminded me of another story I heard from a couple of years ago... They were giving away a Wii, a computer game system, uh, in California, Sacramento, California. And uh, it had this crazy title um, about Wii. And they were, the whole idea was they would have people drink water. And it's whoever could drink the most water without going to the restroom would win the Wii. And some lady named Jennifer Strange, 28, won the contest... And she told everyone ahead of time, she said, I've got to have this we for my kids. She won the contest, but unfortunately, on the drive home, she began to complain of a very bad headache, and those were the last words out of her mouth, she died from water intoxication. There is such a thing as drinking too much water. Now those two stories um, were in my mind this week because we're looking at the temptations of Jesus Christ, and we're only going to be able to get to the first one today, by the way. But we're going to look at the temptations of Jesus Christ. And the first temptation has a lot to do with our appetites. And not necessarily our appetites for food, but our appetites for something. You see, the lady who drank the water wasn't in love with the water. And the guy who ate the pancakes, maybe he did like pancakes a lot, but ultimately what he was aiming for was what he went up on stage to get, which was the prize And what the lady was aiming for was the we. They had another appetite driving them, and for them it ended up being deadly. And so what I want us to see here in the passage that we go through today is, as we look at the temptations and how the tempter, the devil, brought temptations against Jesus Christ, how he tempts us with the same things. So we'll get to that in a second. We're going to talk through these temptations here this morning. But let's start off by reading the passage, Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God, and it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone alone. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word now as we preach through it, think through it, listen to it. Lord, that you'd open up our hearts and minds to hear what it is you're saying and that we would believe your word. Heavenly Father, I know that coming into this room this morning, that already this day, we, in our weakness, in the weakness of our flesh, ...have already succumbed to the very temptations that Christ faced. We've already succumbed. It didn't take much work for Satan to bring us down. So God, we ask that you would cause our minds and our hearts to know what these sins are... ...and to see these temptations, that we confess these sins to you this morning... You cleanse our hearts from all unrighteousness before we partake of the table later. So, God, I ask that you would just now speak to us through your word. Grant me the grace, because I'm such a weak vessel. Grant me the grace to speak it. Keep me from error, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing, as I said already, our, our series called "Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ" as we walk through these uh, gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And so, today we come to the temptation of Jesus Christ. But if you'll recall, this is this follows this immediately follows, matter of fact, what we saw last week, which was the baptism of Jesus Christ. And last week we saw the Son's humility. If you'll remember, we saw his humility as he took on the baptism waters in order to identify. With sinful humanity. We also saw the Spirit's anointing as the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form upon Jesus. Appointing him for his ministry as prophet, priest, and king. And equipping and empowering him for those roles. And we also saw the Father's delight as he pronounced from heaven, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And what we have here today is... Not really just another story, this is connected intimately with that story. It flows right out of the baptism, this, this story of the temptation flows right out of the baptism and is connected especially to that proclamation that the Father makes, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So I want us to see that this text today is, is inseparably connected to last week's text now first, here's where we're going to go today. First, I want to take sort of a, a wide-angle view of the temptations, and, and, and then we're going to focus in on the first temptation, and that's as far as we're going to get today. And then next week, we'll look at the second and third temptations. Now first, I want to take a, quickly a, a, a wide-angle view, just notice a few things about this text. I want us to first of all notice who led Jesus, uh, where Jesus was led, and why Jesus was led there. Now, the text makes it very clear that, first of all, who led Jesus into the wilderness? It was was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus was more Spirit-filled, if you will, than anyone else in history. And the first place the Spirit leads him during his earthly messianic ministry is into the wild. Out with the wild beasts. And into the teeth of the wildest beast of them all, that old serpent, Satan himself. So the first thing, sort of as as, a means of application, if you will... That we can see from this text is that when we are equipped with the Spirit of God, we are equipped for battle, not for leisure. When we're equipped with the Spirit of God, we are equipped for battle. If you think that so long as you have enough of the Spirit or enough faith, as some people might say, that, you, that then you'll have a life of leisure and you won't face the fiery darts of the enemy, then you're sorely mistaken. You see, the Spirit equips us. And the Spirit equips us with armor to fight a fight that will last the rest of our lives. Satan hated the Son, and thus he came at Christ with all his violent force. And Satan hates you, Christian. If you're a believer here this morning, Satan hates you. He hates you because you are being transformed. You are being conformed to the image of the Son. He hates the Son more than anything else. And the more you look like the Son, the more he hates you. He viciously wants to attack you. The more the enemy, the more you become like your divine brother Jesus Christ, the more the enemy and his horde of demonic soldiers will hate you and viciously attack you. And God will not send you retreating from that battle. He will send you headlong into that battle. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. That text the gates of hell prevailing against, will not prevail against the church. I think when I grew up, I always thought of that as a defensive posture. Here we are, the church, and Satan and hell are attacking us, but the gates of hell will not prevail. No, the gates are where hell is, and those are what's being attacked. The church is in an offensive posture. We're attacking the enemy. And so when you're equipped with the Spirit of God, God sends you into the battle. Do you want the easy life? Well, then don't follow Christ Jesus into the wild of this world. Stay on the other side of the Jordan. Stay on the other side of repentance. Stay on the other side of faith, and life will be much easier for you. It will be. But if you're in Christ, you can expect the battle. Now, where was Jesus led? He was led into the wilderness. The wilderness is significant in and of itself. As the gospel writers continue to drive home, as we've already seen, they will continue to drive home the truth that Jesus himself is identifying with his people. He is the new Israel of God. Jesus okay, is led into the wilderness, just as Israel, after, the, after a baptism of sort, uh, when they went through the, red, the waters of the Red Sea. And 1 Corinthians 10 draws a parallel there between baptism and the Red Sea experience of the Israelites. Just as Israel went through the Red Sea... And into the barren, broken wilderness, so too Jesus is baptized and goes into the wilderness. And just as the Red Sea was salvation for God's people, but judgment for the Egyptians, so too baptism symbolizes the judgment floods of God. But for those who are in Christ, the new Israel, there is salvation. For those outside, there is only destruction. So please, if you're here this morning, my friend... Let Jesus bring you through the floods. He is the ark that carried Noah through the judgment floods. He is the new Israel going through on the dry land. He has absorbed the judgment floods for all those who put their hope in him alone. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Now the wilderness is where Israel, the disobedient son, failed. They faced the same temptations Jesus faced and they failed. Which brings us to why Jesus was led there. So he was led by the Spirit. He was led into the wilderness. And he was led there, the text says, so that he could be tempted by the devil. It wasn't just that he happened to be tempted while he was in the wilderness. The purpose of him going out into the wilderness was to be tempted and tested. The purpose of the Spirit leading him there was so that he could be tried. Why? Well, so that he could continue to carry out his role of identifying with his people, and subsequently serving as their substitute. Jesus, as I said, is the new Israel. He's the obedient son heading into the wilderness for 40 days, which corresponds to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. We see the connection here with Israel quite clearly because Jesus, as he battles Satan here, he continues to quote from one book in the Bible. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Three times he quotes from Deuteronomy. And of course, Deuteronomy, if you know your scriptures, is Moses' farewell address to the people of Israel. Where he recounts what God has done. And he he, he, he recounts the law to them. But the wilderness reminds us of something else as well. You see, the wilderness is also a reminder of fallenness. Because Jesus is also the new Adam. The very fact that he is traversing through a rocky, barren wilderness is evidence of the fall. For at one time, there was no wild. There was no wilderness. There were no wild beasts. Instead, there was lush, green perfection as far as the eye could see. No thorns, no thistles, just fruit in abundance. But all that was lost. All that changed. It gave way to a craggy, dry, hard-to-work land because the earth itself is under a curse. The curse brought forth when the first Adam sinned. But now the second Adam is on the scene who would never sin, and he's walking through the desert floor, walking on the desert floor, and in his wake, he's making all things new. So Jesus, as the new Adam and as the new Israel, is identifying with fallen men and being subjected to temptation. I've read these passages quite a bit over the, as we've gone through the life of Christ here in these first few verses. Um, uh, the first few messages, but I'm going to read them again. Hebrews two seventeen says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This was suffering for Christ. I think a lot of times we only think of the suffering of Christ as happening on the cross. No, the temptation of Christ was suffering as well. This is Jesus, the suffering servant on our behalf, in place of his children, and able because of his suffering to help us. Hebrews four fifteen, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our merciful high priest. He was fully tempted as we are but without sin. Therefore, on the basis of his completed high priestly work and only on the basis of his work, we can confidently come to God in any time of need. What need? needs we face as fallen creatures who are weak and tempted. Now, we need to see that the word tempted here could also be translated tested. In both the Greek and the Hebrew, in both languages, the the word is used the same is used for both things, either being tempted or being tested, and it always depends upon the context. It can either mean something diabolical, like an enticement to do evil, or it can mean a trial or a test that one undergoes for the good. And both are happening in this text. God cannot and will not tempt anyone. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But God can and will use Satan's evil schemes to test his children. James 1.12, the verse just right before the one I just read. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It's the same Greek word that he uses in verse 13 to refer to temptation. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life... ...which God has promised to those who love him. So the Greek word trial or temptation... Literally means to burn. Satan brings fire to consume and kill. But God brings it to purge and purify. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Same word again. The fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So God, as he does throughout all of Scripture, can take the evil intentions of Satan and men and use them for his good, his good purposes, for his glory, and for our good. God's testing and Satan's tempting coincide in this event here, but they are radically different, with radically different motives and radically different intended outcomes. So when we think of a verse like 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So God will let people be tempted. Satan's purpose is your destruction. God's purpose is your purification. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And your temptations, as Paul said, are common to man. You may say, well, Christ can't identify with my temptations. As a matter of fact, you may look at the temptations in this text here and think these are pretty pedestrian compared to the temptations that you face. But you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong about Jesus and you'd be wrong about these temptations. These are temptations common to man. You may say, well, I've never been tempted to change rocks into bread. Well, we need to understand what's really happening here as... Jesus is tempted in that sort of way by Satan. Now, there is one difference, though, that I want to bring out. And that is namely that the source of Jesus' temptations are completely external. For us, they are internal as well. You see, for us, the enemy simply needs to gently bump us towards evil actions. Because James teaches this, James 1.14 Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Jesus did not have any internal drive towards sin. Although he shared Adam's blood, he does not, did not, share Adam's sinful nature. Notice the text said the tempter came to him. The temptations were totally external. But that doesn't make his situation any easier than ours. It actually makes his situation more torturous. For we give in to our temptations quickly because we inescapably are inclined to sin due to our inherited sinful nature. So the devil, the adversary, the accuser, he doesn't have to work too hard on us. Just a little salvo of fiery darts. And we cave in. But for Jesus, he never gave in to sin. We get to a certain point and we capitulate. We throw in the towel. But he withstood not just a barrage of darts, but the full onslaught of all the enemy had to give. He got the full blitz of Beelzebub's arsenal. Yet he never sinned, never gave in. Therefore, Jesus' temptations reached a level of intensity that we could not even imagine. For his whole life, we give in once it gets too hard. But Jesus withstood the sufferings of temptation in a way that we can't even imagine. I was trying to think of something to kind of compare it to. So let's say you had two poles, and they're identical in the sense they look identical from the outside. But one of the poles is hollow, and the other pole is filled with cement. And the winds come and start blowing and and the one pole is going to cave quickly because it's hollow in the inside. But the other pole stands strong. You see, Jesus didn't have that sinful nature that we have. And so he withstood Satan's barrage. But the winds of Satan's temptation got stronger and stronger and stronger long after we were blown away. And stronger and stronger and stronger. So the sufferings were intense that he endured As he was tempted by Satan. Now, as I mentioned, I want to look at all three of the temptations, but we can only get to one today. But I think the main application to take away from this text is not some prescription for battling temptation. Let me just say that up front. I don't think the main application for this text for us is to come up with some prescription for dealing with temptation. We can get some principles like memorizing scripture. Memorize scripture so you can fight Satan with the sword of the spirit. You know, have, a, have your arsenal ready to go So you pull out that sword. Deuteronomy 8, 2, ready to go. I think we can learn that from this, but I don't think that's the main focus that Matthew or Mark or Luke have as they share this with us. I think that what we're seeing here, what we want to learn, is that Jesus as our representative is battling three basic categories of temptation here On our behalf. And we need to see what those are. We need to see how Satan continues to entice us with the same temptations, how Christ has defeated those temptations, and more than looking at strategies for fighting the devil, which are good, let us examine the enemy's strategy, and in doing so, we will see and savor Christ's triumph, and then we will rest in Christ's victory. Now, there are three general areas of temptation represented here. And I think I put these in your notes. Three general areas of temptation that are represented here. That the temptations common to man are temptations related to number one. Let's see if y'all can bring that up for me. The temptations common to man are temptations relating to number one, provision, number two, protection, and number three, exaltation. Who are you going to trust for your provision? Where are you going to turn for your protection? And who's going to receive the exaltation? I think that all of our temptations in life and all of our sins can kind of fall into one of these three basic categories. All three are directly related to what we believe. And this is your next thing in your notes. All three are directly related to what we believe about who we are. Okay? About who our Father is. And about what our Father has said. All three are directly related to what we believe about who we are, who our Father is, and what our Father has said. That's why Satan begins his assault on Christ in both of the first two temptations with this phrase If you are the Son of God, that is a direct challenge. To God's proclamation at the end of chapter 3. You remember God's proclamation. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And this Satan's words are a direct challenge to that. He wants to get Jesus to question his father's word. Who his father is and who he is. He attacks believers in the same way. His attacks are meant to cause spiritual amnesia. So we'll forget who we are and forget what God's promises have been. And what they are and what how his promises have been made to us. It's no surprise, therefore, that Satan's very first words in all the Bible, his very first words in all of Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, were these. Did God actually say? Did God actually say he wants to challenge what our Father has said. And in doing so, get us to not trust who our Father is and forget, therefore, who we are. The Word of God, the promises of God, are always directly challenged by the accuser. He enticed Adam and Eve to forget what God had said and consequently forget who they were. God had told them that they were His image bearers. They were, the earth was theirs to enjoy. They were to fill the earth with His glory. But there stood the accuser, tempting them to rethink God's word. Tempting them to reconsider whether or not he really was a good father. Perhaps, as the serpent argued, God was not a father at all. Perhaps he was an oppressive dictator, intent on depriving them of what was good, what was best, what they desired. I can imagine him saying, yes, Eve, he's no father. I mean, a father always has his best intentions in mind for his children. But look, at he's holding something back from you. Forget who you are, Eve. You can be a God. Centuries later, with the new Adam in his crosshairs, stands Satan again saying, if you are the son. The Father loves you, Jesus? Really? And it was His Spirit that led you out here into this desolate place with all these wild animals? And it was He who told you not to eat for 40 days? This is the way He demonstrates His pleasure in you? Some love. That is, if you really are the Son of God. Ultimately, all temptations are an attempt to make us forget who we are, who God is... And what God has said, which leads to rebellion against the fatherhood of God. Why do you think Jesus taught us to pray as he did? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What's the next petition in that prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. If you forget who your father is, then you're going to begin to question his goodness to you. You're going to begin to question his provision to you. And so that leads us to the very first temptation. So in your notes here, it says number one, and the reason it says number one is because this is the first point of the sermon, but this is the only point I'm going to get to today. So if you want to hear points two and three, come back next week or listen to it online. All right? The enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to serve our appetites instead of trusting our Father. This has everything to do with provision. The enemy tempted Christ and tempts us to serve our appetites instead of trusting our Father. Verse 2, And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. By every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus had been fasting. That means he had also been in a place of prayer. Fasting always corresponds with prayer in the New Testament. Matter of fact, we see all the three major spiritual disciplines in this text. Prayer, fasting, and the Word. The way the Spirit equips us for war is through the spiritual disciplines. So, but Jesus, though, he's, he's, he's prepared for battle. He's been, he's been praying. He's been He's been fasting. But that doesn't mean he wasn't hungry, that he genuinely was tired, he genuinely was physically weakened, he was starving. And so Satan says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Certainly part of this temptation, as you've probably heard it preached, part of this temptation is aimed at Jesus using his divine power in a way not ordained by his father. Now, all temptations have layers of implication. But primarily, I believe that Jesus is being tempted to provide for himself and feed himself on his own accord instead of trusting his father. If Satan can convince Jesus to question himself and question God as his father, then he can get Jesus to begin to act on his own accord. As Luther puts it, Jesus was tempted to act in such a way as to not be dependent upon God. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said Jesus was tempted to distrust his father's providential care. And I like the way Spurgeon says it the most. Spurgeon says he was tempted to unbelieving self-help. I love Spurgeon's way of putting it. Jesus was tempted to unbelieving self-help. I especially like that for us today because we live in a day of endless self-help. It's all over the place. And at the core of most self-help prescriptions of the day is the same fiery dart that Satan is launching here at Jesus. Fix yourself. Provide for your own needs. Have it your way. It's your life. Take it while you can get it. I saw in one Christian bookstore a section called Christian Self-Help. I actually chuckled because to me that's an oxymoron. Christian Self-Help. For the Christian, we must understand that in Christ we are sons. And therefore God is our father. And we must rely on every word that comes from his mouth, not the help that we can somehow summon up from within ourselves. Christian self-help makes no sense. So a few observations here. About the enemy's first attack here on our Lord few observations first of all the enemy will start by appealing to very natural needs i don't know if this is in your notes or not i can't remember if i put put it there but the enemy will start by appealing to very natural needs we do have natural needs and they are not bad like any man who goes without food for 40 days jesus is hungry god created beings that have natural desires natural appetites Jesus doesn't tell Satan man does not live by bread, period. He says by bread alone. Natural desires in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. Whether it be food, or sex, or sleep, or whatever. But we must remember who we are. We are not just animals acting on instinct and desire. Products of some sort of fluky, random, evolutionary process. Why is evolution so evil? Because evolution reduces you. Evolution is part of this first temptation here. Forget who you are. You're not an image bearer. You're an animal. Survival of the fittest, buddy. You are just an animal. Products of some random process. No, we are different than the beasts of the field. The birds of the air. We are image bearers of the Almighty and we are designed to rule over the earth. Now, apart from Christ, our natural needs and desires get corrupted and we are given over to them. They rule us instead of us ruling them. The Bible says that before Christ was in our lives, Ephesians 2 3, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I find it interesting here, Paul speaks of the desires of the body and the mind. The enemy begins with our mind. Satan starts with the imagination. Notice he doesn't just say, Jesus, create bread. He says, he has him look at the stones first. You see the stones out there in the wilderness, and if you go to Israel today, you would see it. The stones that are protruding out of the sand there look very much like loaves of bread. He starts with the imagination and just say, like, Just make some bread, Jesus. Look at these stones here, Jesus. Why don't you turn these into bread? The enemy operated the same way in the garden, for we read that Eve saw that the tree was good for fruit and that it was a delight to the eyes, okay, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She begins to imagine it first. Oh, what's it going to be like? Des- oh, To be wise once I bite into that fruit. Satan begins by directing our mind and our eyes to what we think we need to fill the desire that we have. He wants us to think that our appetite, okay, and he wants to think about our appetite, I should say, and he wants to create mental cravings first. To put it in a modern context, it starts with a swimsuit issue before it becomes an affair. It starts with a swimsuit issue before it becomes the affair. It's how Satan works. The eyes and the mind. We have many natural impulses. Food, sleep, as I mentioned earlier. But Satan will take the natural impulses and try to move us and to feed us, to feed those impulses in a way contrary to who we are in Christ and in a way that says, Father, I don't believe you. He wants us to feed ourselves in a way that we say, I don't believe you, Father. I don't believe who you say you are. I'm going to meet this need on my own. I don't believe you have good in mind for me. And so the next tactic of the enemy, the enemy will then persuade us that our Father is holding back. He'll convince us that your Father is holding back from you. The passage Jesus quotes comes from Deuteronomy 8, as I mentioned earlier, when uh, Moses is recounting the, the journey that the Israelites had been. This is Moses' farewell sermon, basically. Deuteronomy 8 is Moses' farewell sermon to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 8, 2 says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that, you might be, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, and he humbled you and let let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God had allowed the Israelites to hunger. Why? To test them. He knew and they proved that the moment they got hungry, they would want to return to Egypt. They wanted to be fed more than they wanted to be fathered. Their bellies ruled them. They didn't trust their father. They forgot who they were, God's special people, his treasured possession. They forgot who God was and who he had demonstrated himself to be in in Egypt already. I mean, what more signs do they need? And they disbelieved what God had said. They demonstrated their unbelief. Even after they had received the manna. You remember he gave specific instructions about the manna. It's going to come to you daily. Don't hoard it up. Why did he tell them not to hoard it up? Because he wanted them to learn to trust him every day. To believe what he said. And when they did hoard it up, what would happen? The next day they'd come and they'd look at the manna that they had stored away. In their Tupperware container and there were maggots there. And so they disbelieved even after they had received the manna. You say, well, that's not me. That's not me. I mean, I'm not like Israel. I would have believed. Well, I think we're all the same. You would have disbelieved with all the rest of the Israelites, just as I would have. We don't believe Jesus' words. This is Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. We don't believe Jesus' words. Why don't we believe? Because we ask and we don't get what we want. And therefore we capitulate to Satan's temptation. And we then say, well, God is not a good father. We want to, be, we want to feed our appetites in a different way. So we sell out God. We buy into Satan's lie and we forget that in Christ we are beloved children. We forget that God is our father and we disbelieve his word. You and I already collapsed at the enemy's first barrage before we could even blink. We have natural wants and cravings, but we see life isn't what we want it to be sex isn't as good, money isn't as plentiful, food isn't as flowing, friends aren't as faithful, church isn't as fulfilling, and we look God in the eye and we say, you are no father, you're giving me rocks instead of bread, you're giving me serpents, God. Why? Because we don't believe what Jesus says, and we buy into Satan's lie and doubt the goodness of our father. And we do it all the time. And we declare his word to be void when we do. It's not that God doesn't know how or what to give you. It's that we don't believe that what he has given us is good. We complain about the cancer instead of realizing perhaps the cancer is a gift. We complain about the low bank account. Perhaps the low bank account is a tremendous gift from God. We don't like the gift and therefore don't believe the Father. When He says that He's doing all these things, it's all good. He's working all things together for your good. You don't see how that cancer is for your good and for His glory, but He's a good Father. Do you believe it or not? That's the question. That's the temptation. That's the serpent. Saying, God doesn't love you. Did God really say, ask and it shall be given to you? Did God really say that? We disbelieve. Why? Because we would rather be fed than fathered. Fathers, how many of you here give, every, give your children everything they ask for? If you do, then please meet with me after the service. Let's talk about parenting a little bit. Your children would rather have everything they want than to be fathered. Because fathering is tough. Sometimes fathers give things that don't feel like good gifts, but they are. And sometimes, maybe most of the times, children have a hard time seeing the love of their fathers in some of the things that their fathers choose to do. And, of course, we're imperfect fathers. How much more our heavenly Father, will he give us good gifts? It may not be the fish in the way we wanted it to look. It may look like a snake to us because we're looking through sinful eyes at God's gift. But God has a divine purpose behind what he's given us, and it's good. Believe him. That's not a snake. That's a fish. Believe him. That's not a rock. That's bread. Believe him. The question is, do we believe who our father is? Who we are in him and what he has said? Paul, when he speaks of the unbelieving Pharisees, the non-children of God, he says that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Christians, we cannot act like that. Our God cannot be our belly. Our appetites cannot rule us. If you are in Christ, then you are a child of God. You are to live by every word. Not some words. Every word that comes from his mouth. Not easy words. Not the comfortable words. Every word that comes from the mouth of God is to be lived on by you. That is your sustenance. Which means we trust what he says, period. We don't need anything else. And the third tactic I see here that that the enemy brings against us, it says maybe in your notes there, but the enemy will then convince us that our appetites are a better guide than God's word. See, that's the third thing the enemy comes in. He wants us to, to question our Father's goodness, so God's holding back from you. And when he can do that, then he can convince us that your appetites are a better guide for your life than this book right here. Just do what feels right. Have you ever had a conversation with someone And if they're an unbeliever, you're not to be surprised by these conversations. But you have a conversation with someone and you say, well, that's not what God's word says. And they say, well, you know, but that's the way I feel. Or that's the way I see it. It's not about whether or not you believe God's word to them. It's about what their belly says. Well, this is how I want to be fulfilled in life. Adam and Eve had a word from God, but they trusted their appetites instead. The Israelites had a word from God, but they trusted their bellies instead. Remember Esau? Esau had a word from God, a birthright, an Abrahamic promise. But when his stomach wanted some red stew, he sold the birthright. He disbelieved God's promise and settled for the here and now immediate satisfaction of an appeased appetite. We're all in the same boat. Unless we've been made new and given new appetites. Friends, if we are in Christ, then Christ has defeated these temptations for us. And so we stand guiltless before the Father. But we will still be tempted with these temptations that are common to man. And we cannot live like the dead men we once were. Going after the appetite of our bellies. We must continually fight. Fight to believe God's word. Fight to believe who we are in Christ. Fight to believe who our Father says he is and trust what he has said. For the non-believer here, I say to you that you will continue to serve your belly unless you come to Christ. Turn from the tyrannical rule of your appetites and turn to the only one who can make correct appetites. Renew your appetites and point your appetites in the right direction. But let me conclude the sermon today with a word to believers, those who are in Christ. Christian, don't don't fall for Satan's tactics. He wants you to be a consumer. He wants to infect your whole life with a spirit of having your appetites appeased. From the way you eat to your sex life to your finances, to the way you do church. The same temptations are affecting the church today. Give in to your appetites. He wants churches, he wants Christians to hunger after the wrong things. There is a way to serve Jesus that is only about our appetites being met. There is a way to do church where we are only trying to be fed instead of being fathered. The Father may prescribe long periods of want, but we don't like that. We want fulfillment. We want feeling. We want excitement. We want crowds. Are you a consumer of a religious experience, or are you a consumer of Christ? There's a very relevant story to our day in John chapter 6. This is Jesus' church growth strategy, by the way. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He has some pretty big crowds, at least 5,000 right there. But word has gotten out. Word has gotten out. This man makes miracle bread. Word has gotten out. The crowds are getting bigger. Now, they want to make him king in verse 15. But he goes away from them. Then we have a a little bit of a a break there in in the story as Jesus walks on the water. The disciples, it's all related. So I don't want you to make you think it's not related, but... Uh, there's the passage here where Jesus walks on the water and then they get to the other side of the lake and the crowds have followed them and the crowds are bigger and he has this long exchange with the crowds and this is what Jesus says to them truly truly I say to you you are seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves do not work for the food that perishes But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You see, Jesus had the crowds, they were huge. But what were the crowds coming for? Not for Jesus himself. They wanted their appetites to be met, they wanted their bellies filled, they wanted more miracle bread. They even referred to the manna when they're talking to Jesus. But they, like their forefathers, whose corpses had long since decayed in the wilderness, didn't trust God as Father and simply wanted their bellies to be filled. Church, it's really easy. You meet the felt needs of the world today. Feed them and they will come. But when the needs are no longer being met in the way that they want, the crowds will quickly dwindle. By the end of John chapter 6, Jesus only has a few disciples left. That's why I call it Jesus' church growth strategy. Because he would have been raked over the coals by the church growth strategists of our day. Why'd you do that, Jesus? He went from a megachurch to a little church in one sermon. How's that? From a megachurch to a little church with one sermon. And he said this. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, I mean true true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Of course, Jesus is there using shocking metaphorical language to refer to those who have found their only hope in Him alone. Those who feed on His blood are those who entrust themselves to His blood, being sufficient to cover them, to wipe away their sins, and to grant them righteousness. Those who feed on His flesh are feeding on Him who gave His life for sinners. They're trusting in Him alone. We feed literally on the Word of God, the Son of God, and we'll have all we need. Your belly may not be full, your bank account may not be strong, your needs and your wants may not be met, but you will be well supplied, lacking nothing, for God will have supplied all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christian, we must learn to be fathered instead of yearning to be fed. One of the tragic elements of those illustrations I gave you earlier was after that man named Boris died on stage, they carried his body off and they continued the rest of the festival, like it nothing happened. And they had more eating contests that day. You see, people are falling. Satan's darts are killing people, left and right. but our world just keeps on going. keeps on going. We still want to be fed. Believer, be different than the world. Be different. Find your satisfaction not in the size of your home. Find your satisfaction not in um, how good looking you are. Find your satisfaction not in all the things that that Satan wants you to go after. Find your satisfaction in Christ alone. In Christ alone alone. I want to pray now and get our minds and hearts ready to partake of the table and this is how we'll conclude our worship service today. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Prepare me for the table. I am such a sinner. I am so weak. And so are all of us in here. We're just like the Israelites. We'd be six foot under the sand if we were with the Israelites. Dead because of our rebellion. But I'm so thankful that my standing before you is not based upon how good I am. My standing before you, Father, is solely based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. He went out into that desert, and on my behalf, and on behalf of all those in here who are Christians, he was tempted, and he withstood, and Satan had no hold over him. And therefore, I come to the throne of grace with confidence. I look forward to the day that I'll be brought into the heavenly places with you, Father, not based upon anything good that I did, but based solely upon What Christ did on my behalf. And so we celebrate that now with a a meal, with a supper, with the eating of bread. We declare that your body, Jesus' body was broken. With the drinking of the cup, we declare that his blood was spilled. And we proclaim his death. And we continue to do this as a church until the day he returns. So, Father, prepare our hearts and our minds right now as we partake of communion. In Jesus' name, Amen.